and welcome to Ipsy Dixit. I'm your host, Ben Edwards, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, William S. Boyd School of Law. I'm here with Gregory H. Schill, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Iowa. We'll be talking about his new essay, Congressional Insider Trading. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Ben. It's a pleasure to be with you. So so glad uh, to have you. This this is this is a you know I wanted to get back into podcasting uh, because of this paper and because I think it's such an important issue right now and it's been highlighted by a lot of developments uh, you know in the news. Uh, so so let's let's start by talking about you know, the the current you know event hook around this perennial issue of how to deal with congressional securities trading. Uh, you know, so what 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 what's happened recently? Yes. Yeah, so. Um... As you know, the topic of uh, insider trading by members of Congress is evergreen, um, but is back in the news because of some trades executed. There were several, but in particular ones by Senator Richard Burr of North Carolina and Kelly Loeffler of Georgia following a confidential White House briefing of senators on January 24th. So let's let's take them separately. Uh, so, so Richard Burr, uh, senator from North Carolina, uh, how how does he? What does he do? What kind of trades does he make? Yeah, so he does a few things. Um, he um, so the briefing is on January twenty fourth, and um, I'm not going to try to offer here a comprehensive history of the facts, partly because we don't know all of them yet, um, and so we're bound to get preempted by events. But um, you know, basic posture is he gets the information. Then um, within about two weeks, he writes an op-ed for Fox News website um, where he says uh, pandemic is going to be okay in the U.S. Um, President Trump's leadership is going to lead us forward. We're in a very good position. Um, don't overreact. And the the gist of the briefing on January 24th that he had received was the opposite, was that um, this is going to be devastating in the United States. And um, and then our third sort of point in the timeline is about a week after he writes that op-ed, he um, does a bunch of trades, including most controversially selling stock in hotel companies, um, right. which uh, probably makes me a lot of travel. Yeah, I mean, if, if you the more you know about the pandemic, the the more you know the travel will be kind of disproportionately impacted. And in fact, he saved himself a bunch of money by cashing in that stock. Um, so uh, additionally, he uh, at some point after that goes to a group of supporters who are come to Washington. They're, um, uh, they meet at the Capitol Hill Club, which is a private club near Congress. And in this private setting, he says, basically, people should be taking this more seriously. Um, this is dangerous. The situation is dire and so forth. So He's taken some inconsistent actions here, um, and he makes this selective, what a securities lawyer would call selective disclosure um, right. to a group of supporters after liquidating his stocks, which was after reassuring the public that everything was okay. And those things, as well as the briefing where he got the information, all happened in pretty close succession. Um, so there's at least some kind of circumstantial case that he uh, traded on material non-public information available to him by virtue of his job. Interesting. So, um, so I, I can see why a lot of people are upset and why there's going to be a lot of investigation into 
what happened around these trades. So without without spending too much time on on the, the details and nuances of his trades, there's another senator from Georgia, uh, the same party, who also traded. It was uh, Senator Waffer. Um, how, how did her trades go down? So she was in the same briefing, got the news. What did she do? Yeah, so um, she Senator Loeffler is married to the chairman and CEO of the New York Stock Exchange, um, who is a uh, very wealthy person. He's worth at least half a billion dollars. Um, right. And on the same day as the briefing, trades were executed on her behalf, um, and uh, you know, so there, so there's again the sort of circumstantial connection. Now. There is a wrinkle here, which is that she claims that her portfolio was managed um, on a blind basis by a third party and that she does not play a role in strategy. Um, presumably, she sets a sort of high level strategy, but she doesn't tell them, you know, buy, sell yeah. or buy the sell back. It's managed by right. the porch. Right. Um, so I think you know, Martha can't. Martha Stewart had something similar. Yeah, Martha Stewart tried that defense. Um, yeah, you know, the broker made the decisions, not me, but it, it ended up not holding up uh, with the yeah. charge. Um, so charge. Don and Nagy had a, uh, who's a professor, colleague of ours at Indiana University, had an op-ed in the Washington Post, and she's somebody who's been writing about uh, congressional insider trading for a long time, and and she's, um, you know, the view that she took was that we need to know more about the arrangements of that alleged blind trust, it has to satisfy certain requirements in order for it to protect her from exposure. Um, so, um, you know, so, so there's all kinds of factual wrinkles here that will have to be developed. But, um, you know, I thought it was a good on-ramp to talk about a, a bigger subject. It's, this, is, this, is a, this is a perennial issue. And, you know, securities trading by better informed insiders is a problem that we have to deal with if we want our securities markets to, to work well. I, I know you, you talk about what we do, you know, in the general corporate context. So if you're, a, if you're a CEO at a public company uh, and you're in that context, if the CEO has shares and the CEO wants to sell shares, how does that happen? Yeah. So the, the basic situation, which is common to both public companies and members of Congress, and for that matter, members of the executive branch and the judiciary is that People in these uh, positions have material non-public information. So the law clerk who's up all night drafting an opinion, um, striking no. down a healthcare, you know, bill or uh, invalidating a patent or what have you, um, you know, they have MNPI as securities lawyers call it, and um, the same is true for members of Congress and and of course in the White House. Um, and it's also true at the executive level, right? So you could imagine Jeff Bezos, CEO of, of Amazon, getting briefings about what's going on in China, about the supply chain and their ability to satisfy certain orders and what demand for Purell looks like. I mean, they're getting information that allows them to put together a picture. At the same time, they're human beings and they have economic uh, interests and needs. It may sound silly to talk about the richest man in the world as having economic needs, but if you could very easily generalize from the CEO of the biggest company 
to just people who work for companies and have an NPI about them or staffers on Capitol Hill or, again, that law clerk or what have you. And, you know, people have a need to buy and sell stock, um, perhaps to make a tuition payment or uh, make a down payment on a new house or what have you. And so in recognition of that, the securities regulation regime has, you know, evolved certain tools to deal with the, the simultaneous fact of people who are in possession of MNPI and those same people needing for economic reasons to trade. And so that, that doesn't present an irresolvable problem. It just suggests the need for a system. Um, and that's, that's what I think we can learn from uh, SecReg world. So, so how does this system work if, if you know you're going you're gonna to want to buy a house uh, in about eight months? And so you want to get your down payment ready. You want to pull money out of the market. How do, you, how do you put that ball into motion as a corporate insider? Well, you know, there's basically, there are a lot of um, rules that bear on this. But the two that I talk about are what's called a 10B51 plan and the Section 16B short swing profits rule. And that comes from the Exchange Act of 1934. Um, so, you know, so let, let's start with the 10B51 plan. This is a plan that an executive or a director would adopt ex ante. Um, so, in fact, they have to adopt it at a time when they're not in possession of MNPI, for example, before they join the company or immediately after disclosure of a 10K or an earnings release. Um, and the 10 v one plan is just, you know, it just says, like, I will buy, let's say, 100 shares of stock the 15th of the month, every month, until this plan is canceled, something like that. Um, and it is a it's a commitment device. It's a way of providing um, a measure of transparency. And I want to come back to that because it, it's not intrinsically transparent. A measure of transparency and a measure of certainty and so forth. And now that said, if the executive wants to buy the house, and you know most executives are not Jeff Bezos, um, even public company executives, uh, you know may have needs that require them to liquidate their shares or parts, you know, some of their shares. And um, so they, they know that eight months from now, they're going to need some money. So they might suspend or modify their 10B51 plan. And they would do so upon the advice of counsel so that when they do so, they don't endanger this safe harbor. That's what a 10B51 plan is. It is not an absolute defense to an insider trading charge, but it is an affirmative defense. And if a plan is adopted and followed consistently, then it is it can be a successful defense. And so they would suspend or modify it um, in a way that doesn't trigger problems like they wouldn't do it frequently. They wouldn't, um, right. they wouldn't you know, and there would, have, there would be a, usually a waiting period before the change would go into effect. Um, right. So it's hard to game. And so they would do that. So they manage their cash flow and, um, and have the money. The reason I say a measure of transparency is that corporate 10B51 plans are not public. Um, they can be uh, divulged in litigation or other proceedings. Um, maybe an investor can get one through a 220 request. That's Section 220 of the Delaware General Corporation Law. Um, but it would have to be pretty closely related to uh, some corporate action. They couldn't just request all the 10B51 plans of all the executives and directors. Um, so... You know, these things are not like published on the company website. No, that's one difference that I propose here. I don't think we should translate this regime 
verbatim, I think we should anal- you know, use it by analogy. And so Congress should make uh, congressional 10b51 plans um, uh, public information. Um, so that's that, that's one piece of it. Um, and then there's the the 16b thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that this is basically an ex post. So the 10b51 plan is ex ante and it's disclosure. Right. 16b is ex post and it's focused on disgorgement. Um. So this is a very simple rule. I mean, these are these both have the advantage of being bright line rules. Um, if any two trades within a six-month window can be identified that create a profit, then the profit is can be disgorged to the corporation. So if the let's say the CEO buys hundred thousand dollars of stock on January second and uh, sells that stock on May second, um, and that trade generates a profit, then that profit can be disgorged. Um, And the reason for that, again, is that this is a system that assumes that insiders have MNPI and need to trade. And so if they're trading um, to generate a profit, then they're timing, they're presumed to have timed that trade to generate a profit based on inside information. This doesn't result in criminal liability or any kind of enforcement action. It can, but then that has that requires showing um, scienter. Okay. But, so you get all these yeah. tools um, for regulating securities trading. You know, just just for people who need to trade in public companies. Now, there there are rules of the road. There they they can be gamed in some ways. I can imagine executives uh, manipulating the disclosure of information once they have their plan set so that it's always high when they're you know, selling and low when they're buying. I could, I could see all that stuff happening, but it's certainly better than no system at all. Um, what do, what does Congress have? How do we how do we regulate that right now? Do they have um, something like these plans? They have a rudimentary disclosure system, and and I would um, I would just briefly, you know, I, I I'm not here to, despite my name, to shill for. Um, <laughs> the the existing system, but I, I think it actually is quite hard to game. Um, there are other aspects of uh, securities regulation where uh, opportunism is easier, but um, I think I think the problem with 10b51 plans, for example, is not so much that they uh, are easy to game; it's that they can be kept confidential. Um, you know, in other words, I don't you know it, it's hard to actually game the plan, um, right. but. Yeah, so the, the current system is really twofold um, in Congress. So one is um, the background system of securities, uh, fraud, enforcement, and litigation. Um, and that's your 10B5, um, you know, and, and associated insider trading uh, prohibitions and criminal and civil penalties that are administered by DOJ and the SEC. And that's where most of the energy in this discussion has gone. Um, it's very litigation uh, oriented. That is the frame, you know, should Burr be locked up and that kind of thing. Um, and I, the problem with that is that where the trader can plausibly claim to have been motivated by public as well as inside information, then there's a circuit split on whether they can be held liable for the trade. 
Um, and and it, information it, about the pandemic was widely available. Right. And, you know, it's not like the pandemic was a secret. And, um, you know, the fact that it moved maybe from the inside of the newspaper to the front page between the briefing and the trade, like, doesn't really, you know, it's just, it's very, that's not the standard. It's, it's, it was, there was well-regarded public information available, at least in January, um, that it was going to be quite serious. And, so Senator Burr could, and in fact has, claimed that he based his trade fully on public information and that the right. briefing he received was not even a factor at all. So you know that's where the litigation framework falls short. That, as I mentioned, there's facts we don't know, and we'll see what happens. But, um, but th- there's just an inherent problem there because people in his position will always be able to claim mixed motives, and that claim will be plausible most of the time. Um, so, so the, the system is, that's the first piece of the status quo. Mm-hmm. Enforcement seems like it's just going to be a real challenge, uh, to deal with. And if you, if you keep having these, these kinds of situations crop up, it's going to reduce overall confidence and, you know, either the market being fair or whether public officials are, uh, motivated, uh, by the public good or, or by their, you know, private ability to game the stock market. Uh, so, so what do we, what do we, what should we do? Like, how, how would we regulate this from, um, you know, if we, we know this problem exists, we know this problem can recur, putting, putting to the side the defenses that Burr may raise and, uh, and litigation he's, he's probably going to face. Uh, what, how, how would you, how would you regulate this for Congress? So the, yeah, the, um, I would start with, uh, the other piece of the, of the status quo, which I would just, I would, uh, modify pretty significantly. Um, and that is the internal disclosure mechanisms that Congress, the House of Congress has adopted for itself, um, pursuant to the Stock Act, which is a 2012 law that, uh, expressly extends federal insider trading prohibitions to members of Congress and the other two branches, um, so, you know, right now, uh, the that disclosure system that they have is ex post only. So there's no parallel to the Rule 10b51 plan model. Right. So I, I would adopt an ex ante model as well. But even the ex post uh, disclosure that's required consists of two sets of disclosures. One are uh, periodic. They're periodic transaction reports um, that have to be filed after a trade, and the other is an annual financial disclosure. The periodic reports um, the can be filed up to 45 days after the trade, which is just an astounding amount of time um, if the goal is to uh, add some sunlight to the uh, member of Congress's conduct during a window when it might have been based on MNPI. I mean, right. no MNPI just about will last 45 days. And so... You know, just by contrast, the 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 um, analog in the corporate world, which is the requirement to file a beneficial ownership report on Form Three, Four, or Five. Here, the parallel will be Form Four. Um, that window is two business days. So, like if a CEO, you know, Tim Cook, for example, sold a bunch of Apple stock last year, filed a Form Four. He had two days to do that, and um, in that report, it was reported that. You know, he, the trades were executed pursuant to a 10B51 plan. That is exactly the kind of thing I'm envisioning here is that there would be a very short window and um, there would be a pre existing 10B51 plan 
uh, in place that would dictate the trade. That that makes sense to me. Um, would you, would you also bring over the uh, the short swing profit uh, prohibition? Yes, yeah, so I, I would. Um, there, uh, the, the purpose of the short swing profits rule is to capture some of the um, possibility for profits based on NPI, notwithstanding rules like ten B five one. So it's it's kind of it's like a belt and suspenders, and it's just a it's you know ten B five one is preventative, um, and it, it kind of regularizes and proceduralizes the trades. Um, and if public would provide transparency, but things are going to creep through. And if a member of Congress, you know, turns a profit on a trade within a six month window, then it's my view that just as would be the case for a CEO, that trade is deemed based on MNPI. Doesn't mean the person goes to prison, let alone face any kind of, um, right. you know, civil penalties, but just the profits are disgorged at the end. Yeah. So. That would take care of it. Uh, so you, you also call for ownership restrictions uh, in terms of limiting what members of Congress can own. Uh, th- this strikes me as a really interesting you know, proposal, and it's, it's, it's very different than what we see in the corporate context. Um, what, what are you calling for? Yeah, so um, there have been proposals on the table for a few years. Um, Elizabeth Warren put one in her campaign platform. She borrowed it, or at least it came there was a similar one already on the floor from a few senators um, that would uh, bar ownership of individual stocks by members of Congress. Um, One of those proposals additionally bars uh, service on any corporate boards, public company boards. Um, Those both sound like good uh, policies to me, but I think we should be realistic about their limitations. So let's say that the senators get this MNPI in a January 24th briefing, uh, right? It would be, very wise to dump hotel stock because travel is going to be decimated, right? But it would also be wise to dump any stock because the market is going to be decimated. And in fact, that's what happened. Yeah. So if you own an S&P 500 index fund, um, and because that's the only equity product you're allowed to own under under the uh, leading reform proposals, you can still make, or in this case, save a ton of money um, by trading on that information and you can always claim that you're motivated really by public information um and so i don't think ownership restrictions alone are enough um but i think that they will be helpful and they reduce the risk of you know we've been sort of talking around what are the risks here i think you know one of them is clearly self-enrichment but another one is policy distortion we don't want members of congress tilting policy in favor of or against certain companies, which they have the power and incentive to do if they're allowed to own individual stocks. So I, I, there are a bunch of reasons why I think ownership restrictions are valuable. Um, right. But yeah. No, I, I, could, I, could, I could see a situation where if, if someone owns, uh, if their portfolio is comprised of a, let's say a large amount of um, uh, pharmaceutical uh, stocks that they would um you know, they might oppose uh, moves to to bring down prescription drug, drug prices because it would it would hurt um, the shareholder returns for those companies. Um, and you know, you, you, you probably don't want members of Congress having that incentive pulling them in a different direction. But why not just why not just let voters decide? Uh, if, if we're disclosing all of this, and we're disclosing the trades. 
uh, why, why don't we just allow ordinary you know, voters to decide whether or not they're okay with particular trades and vote them out if, if they don't like them? Well, I worry that that kind of argument is a little bit of a um, turtles all the way down situation where we end up uh, with really no basis for regulating the conduct of public officials other than the ballot box. And I don't think we really uh, believe that. I mean, for example, nobody would suggest that it should be legal to bribe members of Congress because um, if the bribes come out, then the member of Congress will suffer electoral consequences. Um, this isn't quite that, but it's adjacent. And so, you know, we already have enough problems with regulation of election funding and uh, other issues. Um, this, you know, there, I don't think there is a lot of public support for, I know there's some kind of contrarian scholars who want to like fully legalize insider trading, but I, I don't think there's a lot of public support. Interestingly, Henry Manny, who famously is, um, he's a, is a now deceased scholar, but he, he made his name arguing for the legalization of insider trading on the theory that it would enhance price discovery and efficiency of markets. Even he was uh, opposed to allowing members of Congress to engage in insider trading. Um, The theory was that they were, would purely be engaging in in profiteering and uh, there was no kind of capital uh, markets advantage to permitting that behavior. Um, So I, I guess I, I don't see a strong normative case, um, but I also think from a kind of efficient markets perspective, it's it's difficult to see uh, why that ought to be allowed. I, I share I generally share your view on this. Uh, my, my feeling is that the, the United States uh, does well in part because we have large and robust capital markets and much of the world sends capital here uh, to invest. And it, it's hard it's hard to know exactly which straw is, is the one that's going to break the camel's back. But the more you have a perception uh, that the system is being gamed or that it's unfair or that U.S. politicians are taking advantage of it, then you know, it sort of eats away at public confidence in the market. And it may also eat away and probably does also eat away at public confidence in government, uh, which can be you know, really important for holding things together uh, in a pandemic. So if you're, if you're thinking about this issue uh, – how how would we how would we get a plan like this in place? What what's what's left to do? What do we what what needs to happen? Well, um, that to me is a a virtue of the proposal that I've come up with, um, because I'm not calling for any new regulation or legislation, um, which in this political environment seems um, optimistic to expect. So you know, both of the pieces that I've actually all three of the pieces we've talked about that. Rule 10b-5-1, ex-ante regulation, the Section 16b sort of analogy on the ex-post side, plus the ownership restrictions. Those can each be adopted by each house as a matter of chamber rule, um, presumably through their ethics committee, at least in the first instance, and then by the full house or uh, or Senate. So um, those can be adopted essentially overnight. Um, The... Um, other, you know, because if there is disclosure as a result of that, then, um, additional, uh, action enforcement or 
other litigation, whatever, can occur on the basis of those disclosures. That's in fact what happened in the Equifax breach, for example. Um, an, ex an executive filed a form for as they were obligated to do, and then that that among other things triggered the investigation. And then that investigation uncovered insider trading, including by executives who were senior, but not senior enough to have to file a form for. And like one of those guys was charged ultimately by DOJ and the SEC. So, you know, I think that this system could generate additional action. Um, but in the first instance, it would not require any legislation or regulation. It could be done, um, you know, pretty much overnight by each house. Um, there is something that this leaves unaddressed, though, which I, I think is important to acknowledge. Um, and, and that is the risk um, that conduct like what Senator Byrd did when he when he made a selective disclosure to political supporters. Um, right. The, the tips. Yeah. The tips. So, you know, right. So if we were talking about this, like if I were teaching my students about uh, tipping in, in the context of insider trading. That's what this would be. This would be a tip. But this really does start to impinge on other considerations where the analogy between securities regulation and public policy breaks down. So, you know, Senator Burr gave this information to his supporters, but you can envision a scenario where he calls up the head of the UNC hospital system and says, you guys need to buy more masks. You need to buy more ventilators. You know, now that is a selective disclosure. And maybe the CEO of the hospital, you know, places those orders and then also like goes and buys stock in companies like 3M that make these masks. I mean, you could construct an exam hypothetical pretty easily, but is that really the kind of disclosure, at least by the senator, that we want to restrict? Um, there are real public policy and even maybe free speech considerations there and representation issues, constituent service, um, right. and so forth. So, you know, the, what I propose doesn't touch on that at right. all. Um, the, I, the, the personal benefit side, you know, of this, you know, if you look at the regular tippy, tippy, tipper, tippy, tipper, tippy liability cases, uh, you know, if you're, you're giving selective disclosures to hedge fund, hedge fund managers about what you're going to do the next day, uh, in order to gin up, you know, donations, um, that's, yeah, that, that seems like an enforcement case. Um, if, um, if you're warning constituents about things they need to know about, um, that, that strikes me as very different. Yeah, I agree. Um, now there is a, uh, an SEC rule that is intended to deal with that. It's called regulation FD or, um, regulation fair disclosure. And, um, you know, that might, I, I flag this in the essay, but I don't really develop it because, um, adopting it, uh, unlike the other pieces would require legislation and regulation in my judgment. Um, and also it, as I mentioned, kind of implicates a bunch of extraneous issues that are, uh, beyond the scope of the, of the essay. Um, but I think that might be, uh, it might be of some help. Okay. Well, is, is there anything you'd like to leave uh, our listeners with? as they think about this issue uh, going forward? I think it's important to think about what the thing is that concerns us about congressional securities trading. Um, and, you know, in my view, there are three things. One is policy distortion. Um, as we talked about the possibility that the 
member of Congress will tilt policy towards, um, you know, in a certain way based on um, their power and, and their portfolio. Um, another is self-enrichment by the member of Congress. Um, and uh, you know, that's closer to a traditional insider trading case. Um, and then the third is enrichment of third parties. And that's, um, that's like tipping, basically. That's what uh, Senator Burr is accused of doing. Um, and these things are related but distinct. And especially the third, I think, is different from the first two. Um, so, so that's my first thing is to think kind of rigorously about the different risks and what they have in common, what they, are, what they have um, not in common with uh, their securities system. Um, and then the second piece is to think about this from a regulatory perspective as opposed to um, a litigation or criminal law perspective. And you know the basic reality is unless you want to ban ownership of securities by members of Congress, in which case I think you would see the makeup of Congress change because people could not afford to save for retirement and be a member of Congress, for example, because they couldn't own stocks uh, or bonds. Um, so it, unless you want to go to that extreme, which I don't, as far as I'm aware, nobody's proposed, um, then trading by members of Congress is going to be inevitable. And members of Congress also inevitably have and in fact create material non-public information. Um, so then the question is, how do we manage that? Um, and that's where the models, I think, from the public company world are helpful. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Ben. It's great to talk to you. Stop, stop. Well, what is that? Stop. 
stop. That void stop means something. And whatever it means, you're invisible. I am satisfied so long as I am invisible. But what am I investigated in? Your money is investigated in the Metropolitan Railroad. Every car that is running in New York today, you own shares of. You own part of them. You, you, you're invested in them. Ah, uh, what are you speaking about? I've got to pay my own fare. Sure. But look, when we were standing on the corner this morning, and you visited, didn't the car stop? Yes. Then it don't do that for everybody. Ah, uh, what are you talking about? What's that got to do with me? And then again, when we were inside of the car, and the car didn't go to the street you wanted it to go. Didn't the conductor give you a transfer? A changer? A changer? A transfer. Oh, yes, yeah, sure, I got it. Well, that told you the stockholder? I thought that that told nothing of the kind. Everybody else got a transfer. Well, then they're all stockholders. Well, what you told me to keep them and to save them up? Sure, save up the transfers and you get a thousand of them. You bet your life I did it, it cost me many initials to save them up. Ah, but when you get a thousand, then you're going to get promoted. Promoted to what? Do I get promoted? Don't you understand? Then you get a thousand transfers. Then you can stand on the corner yourself and get them out. I don't like that. That's no good for me. Nothing is any good for you. Look at the honor you lose. But I don't want that honor. The only thing that I ever investigated my money in that didn't go up was an airship. 